The Athletic. Thirty-six games down, fifteen games to go. Welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic and by me, Ali Maxwell, alongside Tom Warville and Michael Cox. It's time, guys, to open up our Euros notebook. This is our third episode of eight. And on today's show, a few reflections on the group stage, some thoughts on a couple of the heavyweights as they head into the knockout stages, and a preview of the two standout ties, in our opinion anyway, of the round of 16, Belgium against Portugal and England against Germany. It's been a few days since we last opened up the notebook, guys. It's been an exciting few days, to be honest, despite some shots being fired at the format. I do think match day three still provided plenty of entertainment. Michael, what's your favourite moment, favourite match from the last few days? I enjoyed Denmark's win over Russia. Um, I think a lot of people wanted uh, Denmark to go through after what happened with Christian Eriksen. And beyond that, it was just a really good performance. It was a very unusual situation where side qualified in second place, having lost their first two games. So it wasn't actually to do with the third place team going through. They outright qualified in second place. And there were two fantastic goals. Uh, the curler from Damsgaard got things started. And then just when you thought Russia might be coming back into it after Zoiba's penalty, Andreas Christensen just scored an extraordinary long range goal that made me kind of gasp as I was watching it and uh, obviously added a fourth as well so yeah I'm pleased Denmark got through I think they're the second best side in that group and I think if they hadn't progressed based upon being forced to play the uh, remainder of that Finland game it would have been very unfair so pleased for Denmark. I was digging into some numbers this morning ahead of this and there was one name that kept popping up in quite a few different and quite varied categories and that was Hoibier uh, of Denmark and Tottenham, uh, certainly just in terms of the numbers, Michael, he looks to be having a, a brilliant tournament. And and given his leadership qualities and just his whole profile as a player, he feels almost made for like a major international tournament knockout stage. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I think he's got three assists so far, hasn't he? Which is um, unusual for him. I, I, I haven't checked this, but I would guess that's more assists than he got for Tottenham in the entirety of last season. Not necessarily the most uh, extravagant through balls have led to those assists, but he does play intelligent passes and I think just gets the ball into the right zones quickly and efficiently. So, yeah, he, he's a very good player. I think he's had a good couple of seasons, hasn't he? And uh, starring at this tournament as well. And Tom, what got your heart racing this week in the way that only match day three of a major international tournament group stage comprising of six groups of four teams can? Good breath control there, Ali. <laughs> um, I think uh, it probably would be the uh, the Denmark game. But um, Michael's had that one, so I think my, my backup would probably be Spain, just because it's always great to see a team actually let the shackles loose uh, and just go at a team. And I thought they were really, really impressive against, admittedly, a very poor Slovakia side. But it was just good to see them attacking so consistently. Yeah, just really, really enjoyed watching them. Hey, I'm not going to pick out a midfield player from every team that we talk about to touch on, but Pedri is a joy to watch play football, isn't he? Insane to think at his age that he could have such a major impact on a major tournament like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it probably, he's one of the the deals that Barcelona have done recently, which has actually been quite good. And probably they haven't got quite as much credit as they deserve. I mean, you've had the likes of Braithwaite, um, Coutinho could potentially go down to the dud category. There's, there's kind of an endless list of, of deals which you look at and think, mm, that's that's not really worked out, has it? But the Pedri one, I think, is is an incredible value for money. I think €20 million Euros from, from Las Palmas and he'll be sitting in that midfield for years now. Wednesday night saw the finale to Group F or... Group WTF, 
which journalist Melissa Reddy called it, which I thought summed it up quite well. It was a, a real standout evening of, of Euros football so far. Michael, because we had matches going on concurrently this week, it was impossible to watch both games in detail at the same time. You were on France versus Portugal duty, a two-all draw which saw France top the group with five points. They obviously beat Germany uh, in the first game and then drew to Hungary and Portugal to finish their group. What was your main takeaway from this game from a French perspective? The last time we spoke about them, we were pretty impressed with their performance against Germany. What about the next two? Yeah, it was a funny game, France against Portugal, for a couple of reasons. One, because penalty decisions were so prominent in, in the outcome. And second, because I thought every time either side scored, they then had their best spell of the game, if that makes sense. It's like the goals gave the size confidence. France, I mean, they changed system. Deschamps changed system. He played 4-3-3 for the first few games, but here he went back to the World Cup system, which is more of a 4-2-3-1, Mbappe on one flank, Tolisso tucking in on the other side. I didn't think it worked particularly well, but it did seem to get Mbappe in, in better positions to get on the end of Pogba's through balls, which has been the main source of creativity for them so far. There's still some questions. I mean, they changed the right back. Uh, left back, they had problems with um, a, a substitute Hernandez at halftime because he was on a yellow then brought on Luca Dean he got injured straight away so they ended up with Rabio at left back um, so there was a few strange little things going on I haven't been overwhelmingly convinced by France so far I must say but I do get the sense that they, they will know how to get through in the knockout stages and uh, yeah it's uh, it's a classic kind of tournament situation I always tend to look at a size defensive performance rather than their attacking performance in terms of their likelihood of winning the tournament and I think in that respect France do look Still quite good, maybe not as good as three years ago. I think Varane has looked a little bit shaky, but overall they look decent, yeah. One aspect of that team that is performing at a very high level is the midfield, specifically Kante and Pogba. Pogba again catching the eye last night. Yeah, Pogba and Kante have played together 30 times for France. They've never been on the losing side, which is a pretty good record. And I think maybe it's as well as I've seen Pogba play, actually. I mean, he's tended to be quite good at international tournaments. But this, I mean, he's played some incredible passes. In the first game, the one for um, Hernandez, wasn't it, for the Hummels own goal? And then a couple last night, there was one pass that was so good for Mbappe about 15 minutes in. That Mbappe, I thought he took the shot in a completely wrong way, but he felt almost compelled to just because it was such a good through ball. It felt like he had to go for a picture book finish as well. But yeah, you know what? Been- I, was, I was listening to this on the radio and the commentator described it as a Thierry Henry style finish, which I just loved because in those three words, I could picture exactly what he had tried to do, if you know what I mean, in a way that just mentioning another player's name would never ordinarily conjure up an image like that. Well, I tell you what, if you read my piece on the on the site today about it, Ali, I used exactly the same phrase. It was classic <laughs> Thierry Henry. But it was one where I don't think he should have taken it. I think he should have had a touch and then maybe even gone at the near post. But Patricio read it. But it, yeah, I mean, Pogba was brilliant. Not just the passes he played, but some of the touches. I mean, he uh, there was a brilliant kind of sidestep to make space for a shot that Patricio turned onto the bar. There was a brilliant back heel by his own corner flag to escape some pressure. He's just playing really well, Pogba. And I feel like maybe a slightly slower pace if international football suits him. I thought this game was played at quite a low pace. And I go back to Serie A where I think he played better for Juventus than he ever has for Manchester United. And I think the lower pace suited him there as well. So he's personally, he's been my uh, player of the tournament so far, Pogba. They're up against Swiss- Switzerland in the next round. 
France and I think they're quite an interesting team Switzerland certainly uh, there's a an account on Twitter Connor Rowden who I would massively recommend following I, I just love his analysis on international football and, and particularly at youth level but because he follows international youth football so closely he feels quite strongly that that Switzerland go a little bit under the radar because albeit they might not have the star names of other teams if you look at the amount of caps compared to the ages of the, this squad Switzerland have a team that is certainly not over the hill if anything, many of them entering into their prime and have played so much football at international level with each other. So p- perhaps not one that leaps off the page in terms of star names, but as a unit, really, really impressive, know each other's games really well. And, and that will be a tough game for France. They're going to have to step up their performance level, that's for sure. Now, uh, we're going to talk about Portugal later on and preview their game against Belgium. Portuguese neighbours Spain, Tom. Let's go back to them because they were a, a big feature uh, of Wednesday's games as well, winning 5-0 against Slovakia uh, on Wednesday afternoon. They also finished on five points like France, but they left it till this last game for their first win. Uh, and Tom, I, I don't really know how this sort of farm analogy has found its way into discussion of underlying metrics so much in football but was there an extent to which Spain were sort of reaping on match day three having spent the first two games sowing? I think that's a, a great way of putting it yeah they they definitely planted the seeds of, of a good attack in their first couple of games then they had 5.6 xg in total in the first two fixtures uh, with scoring just a single goal so you can lament the finishing of Gerard Moreno and Alvaro Morata but I think that uh, it just shows that they were consistently creating really good opportunities and at some point the goals would come uh, and the goals did flow against Slovakia like we said earlier they, they scored five they racked up another good you know XG score I think 3.6 overall so they've got the inner kind of workings of a very good attacking side I just wonder if that changes when they come up against a side which have a little bit more quality in possession I think Sweden Poland Slovakia they're not really kind of very dominant ball players um, and Spain have been able to dominate possession in every game they've had so far so yeah so far they look good but I think that's probably influenced heavily by uh, the opposition they faced as well Croatia up next for Spain and then the winner of France and Switzerland for whoever wins that tie uh, Michael just looking at the groups as a whole as we leave them behind obviously 16 teams out of 24 heading through among that group any surprises for you anything notable particularly uh, for those who have gone through or those who missed out no not really I mean I was quite intrigued by how the four sides who qualified through the Nations League would do that's North Macedonia Hungary Slovakia and Scotland because they're sides that essentially didn't qualify through the traditional route and we went back to the Nations League and in various ways they got through and I suppose there were conflicting opinions on on the decision to allow these sides into the competition. I guess you could argue it either way because I don't think any of them were outclassed. I think Hungary did better than a lot of people expected. North Macedonia had their moments. Slovakia won a game. Scotland did hold England to a draw, but none of them have qualified, which isn't a surprise. But it's, um, yeah, for those of us who have a slight problem with this format, it does sometimes feel like we take 36 games to get to roughly the combination of 16 sides that we all would have expected. So I enjoyed the group stage. I think it was pretty entertaining. But as an actual tournament format, um, it does feel either slightly bloated or even I would say potentially we could go to 32 teams. Because if you're letting sides of, with respect, if you're letting sides of the quality of North Macedonia into the tournament and they're not being outclassed, there are eight other sides you could let in. You could have a proper tournament structure of 32 like the World Cup. Everything would make sense and the quality probably wouldn't be diluted too much further. So, yeah, I, I've just found that interesting from uh, slightly 
geeky tournament structure perspective well we can shelve any talk of of the euros format for well for quite a while now which i'm pleased about um tom we love the word trends probably use it too much if anything uh on the athletic site over the last few weeks we've had ryan conway written writing about the manager fashion trends on the touchline uh, at the Euros. Uh, And now your colleague, Mark Kerry, he's taken some time to dig out the most interesting statistical trends from the tournament so far. Yeah, absolutely. Mark's done a a great piece, which I think will be on the site today at some point, looking at, yeah, like you say, Ali, what those trends are. We were going through the games and kind of from from our notes and from the stats, wondering if there's any kind of key themes we've seen. And there's there's a few in there. So I think one of them is just the the kind of versatility and we've touched on it on this on the notebook in in recent weeks um how players are playing different roles for their national teams than their club sides uh, and i think mark's kind of highlighted genie one adam of course alexander sinchenko and um pierre hoybier as well who who we've obviously spoken about earlier on today aside from that looking at a bit of the uh the formations used which i think is interesting 433 is kind of still the king um it's still the most dominant uh, formation used followed by four two three one, and then some variation of a of a three four three. Whether it's with one kind of playmaker behind the strikers or two inside forwards like Germany play behind the the striker as well. And then finally, kind of some some stuff on fouls and yellow cards, which I think is quite interesting. Michael's kind of praised the referees on this pod before, and I was kind of keen to to dig into the stats on them to see if they are letting the games go a little bit more are they kind of letting fouls go unpunished and it's it's only a slight change and maybe it's a, squir- a quirk of the small sample but we've seen yellow cards per game drop from 1.6 in the Premier League this season to 1.3 at the Euros so I thought that was that was quite interesting um, the refs are seemingly keeping their cards in their pockets for a, a bit longer this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Okay, let's leave the group stage behind now and, and preview the two most standout ties, I think it's probably the right word to use, of the round of 16. On Sunday night, We've got Belgium against Portugal. Now, we haven't spoken about Belgium too much. They won three games out of three in their group, Michael. They didn't have too many issues. What would you say is the story of Belgium's group stage? They were one of the favourites for the tournament heading in. I think they are gradually, gradually getting better. I think, obviously, De Bruyne didn't start the first game. He came into the tournament midway through the group stage. I think he's their best player, um, along with Lukaku. I don't think there's any doubt about that and I think his introduction just completely changes the way that they play I think about them pretty much what I thought coming into the tournament they are probably a little bit reliant on a couple of big individuals I'm concerned about the lack of pace in the defence in relation to how high up the pitch Martinez wants them to play I think that could prove an issue against a good counter-attacking side like Portugal but overall I like them I would on what we've seen so far I'd have them as marginal favourites for this game against Portugal which I wouldn't have said at the start of the tournament because I thought Portugal looked in very good shape but as we may discuss in a minute I suspect Portugal's tactical performance against Germany was probably the worst of the tournament because of how they struggled against wingbacks and that clearly could be a major factor here You mentioned the lack of pace in the back line and, and how the way that Martinez likes to play could see that sort of exaggerated in a negative way for Belgium I mean have they been caught cold in the group so far on that front it, it was clear to us 
pre-tournament that they looked on paper anyway, insanely good in attack, potentially a little shaky at the back. Has that actually played out? No, probably not. Although I don't think they've really played against any properly quick forwards. I mean, Russia and Finland don't really have anyone in that respect. Denmark, uh, you know, I, I think you can say something similar about them really. So no, they haven't, but I just think, you know, it will be a different caliber of opposition that they encounter in the knockout phase. I think it was a relatively simple group for them. But even someone like Ronaldo, I mean, Ronaldo's what, 35 now? I think I might say he's 36 even. I'm not sure. But he's still the quickest forward they will have faced. And he's been quite interesting, I think, in terms of how he's varied his movement. He's playing up front, but he's not staying up front. He's drifting quite a lot to the left in particular, coming deep. And I just think someone who can work the channels like that, I would fancy him in a race against Order of World and definitely against Vertonghen. So I think... It's maybe the obvious thing to say, but I think that could be a, a pretty key issue here. And Portugal have other players, of course. I mean, Jota on the left flank is very quick and very good on the break as well. Maybe haven't seen the best of him so far, but I'd be a little bit concerned about that if I was both. Of course, the, the one sort of standout issue so far in the groups was that first half an hour against Denmark when they were just completely overcome by the energy, of, uh, particularly of the Denmark front line and the midfield and, and Denier giving the ball away for, for the only goal that they conceded in the group stage so far. Tom, if you dig a little bit deeper, in three wins of th- uh, three wins out of three, as good as it gets, but looking under the hood, as you like to do, are the numbers equally as impressive or are there any numbers that suggest a weakness that could be exposed by Portugal in this game? Yeah, I think the top line numbers are that they've probably kept the handbrake on a little bit, really, much like England, where they've got the real quality in the squad where you think on paper you could create an attack which creates far more than they have so far, but they've been a you know a, a bit reserved going forwards. 3.9 XG created in the group stages is 16th out of 24 teams, so not exactly blowing the doors off, off the opposition in terms of their tendency to attack and try and attack often and create good quality chances but then at the back much like England they've just been very very solid really 2.3 xg conceded is the fourth best after Denmark England and Italy so those are kind of the the top line numbers but I think one interesting start I found is that teams are attacking Belgium slower than any other team so whether that says something about the way that you know, defensively they're set up, they're tough to actually attack quickly. There are times where teams may win the ball high up against them or just, you know, have to pass through them and, and around them. But overall, yeah, they've they've been the, the toughest team to attack quickly. So I think that perhaps favours a team that is good in possession and, and is able to, to do that. But then again, perhaps the game against Portugal should could play to the hands of, of the Portuguese who if Belgium throw too many numbers forwards, then Portugal are probably one of the, the best counter-attacking teams in the in the tournament, like Michael said. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to see how this one plays out. I'm, I'm struggling to kind of call it at this moment in time. Yeah, perhaps that slow rate of, of attacking from the opposition could be a function of the teams that they've played and, and that might be different against a Portugal side that we saw score a brilliant goal uh, on the break against Germany, of course, in that game in the second match of the tournament. Michael, Portugal themselves, they, they beat Hungary first up after a pretty tricky first, what, 80 minutes of that game. Then they were thumped by Germany and drew 2 all with France on Wednesday night. So it's another fixture against a top-tier side, which in a way you might think would be quite good preparation for the knockout stages. Do you think they're actually playing well? Um, not really. I can't work them out, to be honest. I had them pretty close to France. As, well, I had them as second favourites coming to this tournament. But, I mean, they've had three difficult games and now they've had a fourth difficult game. They had Hungary against, uh, obviously, 100% capacity 
crowd there, Germany, and then they had France. So it's been really difficult for them. I mean, the Germany performance, I must say, I think it's the most kind of tactically incompetent display I've seen from a major side at a major tournament for a long time. They just constantly got caught out by the runs of Hossens on the far side, um, which was exactly the way everyone expected Germany to play, exactly the way they played in the first game. They didn't have any solution for it whatsoever. So um, that'd be my main concern about them. We know Santos is a, a pretty cautious manager. He likes to keep things consistent in terms of his shape. So I don't think they'll change system against Belgium. But like I say, because of the threat of those wing backs, I think that could be a real issue. And I think, um, you know, there are a couple of changes of personnel for the game against France as well. So it'll be interesting to see whether he sticks with that 11, that lineup um, for this game. Yeah, I, I'm interested in, in Santos and what he wants to do with this team. Of course, they won the title in 2016 and there's been quite a lot of change since then and a lot of talk about them changing style as a result of the more technical players that have come into the squad and the side. Bruno Fernandes, Bernardo Silva, Diego Jota, just three of those who are heavily involved now but weren't involved at all in 2016. Do you think there's a, a, an extent to which they're not yet fully comfortable in their new skin? Yeah, I think I think you're probably right, Ali. It's almost a, a second shift because I, I would I would make an argument that when Fernando Santos came on, he, uh, came in, he made a bit of a shift to a more defensive system. I used to think of Portugal as quite free-flowing, certainly played with a lot of width and a lot of attacking drive and they played a much kind of stodgier style of football, I think, when they won it five years ago. And you're absolutely spot on about the players who've come in. I think the interesting thing is the players who've come into the squads from five years ago, in fact, even in the last three years, a couple of them, they haven't been at their best. I mean, Bruno Fernandes has been brilliant for Manchester United for 18 months. He was dropped for yesterday. I don't think he gets back in. Bernardo Silva's had a funny tournament. I mean, he was... He was taken off at half-time of the Germany game, I think a little bit harshly because of what was happening with Rossens. I don't think it was a, a, his own individual fault. I think it was a systemic fault. And then yesterday had a strange game where he was brilliant for the first half. And then suddenly when France ended up with Rabiot at left back, when you think, hang on, Bernardo Silva's going to run riot here, he went really quiet. So actually, I think the players who came in yesterday who made Portugal look a bit better in midfield and not the new players. They're almost the old guard from 2016 coming back. Jean Moutinho, I thought, was quietly good yesterday. And probably the big uh, winner was Renato Sanchez, who was um, just brilliant at finding pockets of space to collect the ball and really driving forward at France. So I can imagine that they will use the same midfield and I think that means no place for Bruno Fernandes who um, I mean that would be controversial after how good he's been for Manchester United but his performances so far haven't been great and I, personally I just think it's a, a difference with you know Manchester United the team is based around him and for Portugal he's having to play a slightly different role and he hasn't really got into games so um, yeah a few question marks there and also a concern at right back I'd say where obviously Cancelo missed out on the eve of the tournament because of Covid and Nelson Semedo has had some problems. Again, I would make some excuses for him because of the system issue against Germany. And I thought that penalty he conceded last night, that's never a penalty for me. I was amazed that went to VAR and was upheld. I thought it was really harsh. He tracked the run of Mbappe, protected himself with a little bit of an arm up. But that's never a penalty for me. So I feel a bit sorry for him. But I still think Belgium will maybe looking at that will maybe look at that zone and think if we can get Eden Hazard on the ball up against Semedo, he might have some joy. These days, can't even jostle with a pacey striker in and around <laughs> really the can't. penalty box, can you? You really can't. Jostling, banned, who'd have thought it? Um, look, you've mentioned a number of times over the last week or so 
how poor they were against Germany, specifically uh, how the German wingbacks were constantly uh, the extra man uh, and, and how many problems that caused for them. I mean, Belgium on paper are also playing a three at the back with wingbacks. Do, do Belgium have the wingbacks like Kimmich and Gosens to hurt Portugal in the same way if they fail to adapt to that rather large issue that they had? Yeah, they're different types of players. I would say they're more ball players. Um, if anything, I, I suppose the balance is the other way around. Torgan Hazard on the left is is quite tricky, good in possession. And I think of Mounier for Belgium is actually being a much better player than he is at club level and is quite good at arriving late in goal-scoring positions. I can think of him doing that in each of the last three tournaments, including this one. So, yeah, they, they may be not quite as rampant um, but I think they will push forward and uh, for me that's the clear area to look at after how badly Portugal struggled in that respect I think the one interesting thing with with Belgium's options is that on the left you know Hazard like Michael said is is good in possession quite attacking you've got Yannick Ferreira Carrasco as well on that side who's definitely just a winger who's playing wing back and loves to, to dribble and take players on and I think if you add Eden Hazard on that side as well you've just got a very attacking kind of not very overly defensive-minded set of players. I think Thorgan Hazard, looking at the numbers on FB ref, has applied pressure 37 times. And just one of those led to Belgium winning the ball back within five seconds. So uh, to me, that says something about he's not an overly amazing wing-back in a defensive sense. So I wonder if we get this kind of asymmetric attack where Portugal are going to look to get down Belgium's left, uh, whereas Belgium's right is a lot more defensively sound with, with Munier, who does like to get forward and pop up at the back post, but I think he's probably a better individual defender than the players they've got on the other flank. Lastly, we, we have to touch on Cristiano Ronaldo. Michael, you've raised question marks about Belgium's back three. I'm sure he'll be licking his lips at, at coming up against some of those defenders, um, both in transition and also in, in more general play. And of course, in this game, he could become the greatest or rather the leading goal scorer in men's international football history. Yeah and I really think this is a remarkable record. There's so many spurious records that go around but to be the all-time greatest international goal scorer in history is I mean I just didn't think I'd ever see it beaten or overtaken and certainly not by a UEFA player. I mean traditionally these records are you know Ali Dai when you look at the sides he scored against with respect were not the strongest sides in international football but Ronaldo's done it in the UEFA confederation I think the um, if you, if you discount Puskas, who was playing in a different era, of course, when there were you know a lot more goals in in uh, games, close as the next closest modern player in the UEFA confederation, and he's on seventy one. So for Ronaldo to get to one hundred and nine, and I expect we get at least a dozen, maybe a couple dozen more before he stops playing. Um, it's brilliant. And I think it's great that he's doing it on the highest stage when everyone's watching, you know, to equal it against France, to maybe surpass it in the knockout stages of the Euros. You know, he's not doing it against San Marino or Liechtenstein. He's doing it when everyone's watching. And I think that's incredible. I, I never thought I'd see this record topple. So I, I found that quite uh, quite exciting to watch, actually. I'd agree. It's extremely exciting. And one thing I've been working on this week is is kind of having an article in the chamber ready for when he does break it to look at the trends and the numbers behind um, his what will be his his 110 goals, maybe more on the night if he uh, if he breaks it even further. But yeah, to go to back to that point about him doing it at the highest stage, one of the stats I found most interesting that is that his goals per cap rate. So how many goals is he getting per international appearance? Is actually lowest in international friendlies, um, which I just really wouldn't expect. I thought those are the games where 
you're maybe playing a lower caliber of opposition perhaps and you can you can kind of fill your boots but um yeah his goal scoring record is i think 0.37 per game there and at the world cup euros and the qualification for those tournaments he really raises his level so yeah that was one of of many hopefully interesting nuggets you'll get to read about when he does break the record and he should be on 110 of course because he scored one of the great international goals where uh, he beat the defender, flicked it over the keeper's head and Nani stabbed it in on the line before being given offside, which is, I mean, Ronaldo's got a reputation for tantrums after his teammates have uh, have slighted him and that is probably the most worthy of all, I must say. I mean, I- I'm, I'm up for him breaking it, although it is a bit of a blow for someone like me who's actually named after Ali Dai. So, um, yeah. <laughs> identity-wise, it's a bit of a blow. I guess I'll have to name my firstborn Cristiano. Um, let's talk England-Germany. Tuesday night, huge game. Wednesday night saw Germany draw 2 all with Hungary. We've seen a few different sides of Germany as well, haven't we, in this tournament so far, uh, Michael? I know you didn't watch this one too closely, but just in general terms, England against Germany in the round of 16, how excited are you for this game? How do you think the matchup goes for both sides. Yeah, very excited. I mean, for England to get Germany in the second round is incredible, really. I mean, with all due respect to some of the other sides in the second round, you know, you you expect to relative if you win the group, you expect to get a relatively easy draw in the second round. England haven't got that. Germany are unpredictable side. They I can't work them out. You look at them on paper and it's a really good starting eleven. But when you watch them play, with the exception of that Portugal game, they've been very unconvincing. I only saw highlights of the Hungary game, but obviously struggling to beat Hungary uh, doesn't bode well. I would have England as slight favourites with a big emphasis there on home advantage. I think we've seen over the last year how important home advantage is. We've seen at this tournament how it's given a pretty poor Hungary side a boost as well. So I think that just gives England the edge. But... Um, I think it'll be really interesting tactically, you know, particularly with how Germany will presumably continue with 3-4-3. And I think there's a good chance that Southgate matches that system. Hey, Tom, who currently leads the Euros for non-penalty expected goals after nodding in from half a yard on Thursday uh, on Wednesday night? Uh, it's Kai Havertz, who I think has been really impressive and has continued his great club form over into the Euros. Um, and obviously shows that he was severely impacted really from COVID and then long COVID and took a while to get fit. But yeah, he's starting to look more and more like a very shrewd signing by Chelsea. But yeah, I've, I've been really impressed with him. He's He seems like the heir to Thomas Muller's throne for the national team, kind of picks up those spaces really intelligently. And I just really like his his versatility. He can kind of go out wide, he can play in the in the lines and he can play up front as well. So um, yeah, he's going to be, I think he's probably the player that Calvin Phillips is going to be chomping away at the ankles of maybe it's Tony Cruz but I just think that in a in a receiving sense Havertz can pick up those spaces and drag defenders out and I think we're going to want to keep a, a flatter back line and maybe it's uh, it's Phillips who's tasked with with stopping him from having a big impact in in terms of Havertz Michael Thomas Tuchel watching with great interest I suspect not just because he is German and presumably supporting Germany but also because Havertz as a Chelsea player and Chelsea playing in terms of tactical structure, not too dissimilarly to this German side, Havertz showing, well, showing Tuchel, if he needed to see it, that he can lead a line. He could be a, a modern day number nine. Yeah, he's been really good. Uh, I've been really impressed with his appreciation of space in particular. I think even against France, when they lost 1-0, he was their best player. He was just finding the, the passing lanes and allowing Germany to progress the ball. And he was taken off, which I was really surprised about. And as soon as he went off, I think Germany went completely flat. So I think he's a really big player here. 
I agree with what Tom says. I think he's, you know, the, um, the situation with England's midfield duo will be interesting because they'll have to protect the the players between the lines or protect that space, but also will be tasked with shutting down Cruz and Gundogan. So that's that's a really tricky area for England. But um, yeah, impressed with Habits, one of the best players of the tournament so far for me. When you analyse a team closely, you can basically pick up a, a question mark in, in every area of the pitch, really, especially with England with so much talent across all areas. What was your main takeaway, Michael, from England against Czech Republic? Yeah, it was a boring game, but I thought there were a few interesting tactical features. I mean, quite a lot was different from the first two games. The fullbacks were much higher, particularly Shaw down the left. The centre-backs brought the ball forward more, which I think both Stones and Maguire can do. But, um, you know, we didn't see much sign of that from Stones and Mings in the first couple of games. Obviously, Saka and Grealish came in. A lot of clamour for Grealish. I thought Saka was the better player. And I think Southgate probably likes his tactical intelligence more. I'd be really surprised if Grealish kept his place. I wouldn't be that surprised if Saka kept his place. Um, And up front, Harry Kane touched the ball more than in the first two games combined. Didn't score, but had a decent chance. Got into a good situation from the Maguire pass. Um, I thought his his general round game was better. I think he had more options for passes as well. So there was quite a lot going on, despite the fact that the second half, I think, was probably the flattest half of football that I've seen in the uh, 36 games so far. I think there was about one shot. Was there one shot in the second half, Tom? I think there was. Like that. Th- yeah, I think so. There was none for England, um, which is the the only score- shotless second half we've seen so far. So duller than dull, really. But I think that was the plan from Southgate. And Michael, on, on the spectrum where one end of it is Southgate is a disgrace for not making the most of these exciting <laughs> technical attacking players. And the other end of the spectrum is... England have qualified from a group without conceding a goal and in tournament football being solid first and foremost could be the most important thing. Where do you land there at the moment? Well, I, you can probably guess I'm on the on the latter end of the spectrum. I think when you look at past performances of sides who've won the competition, it's generally about not conceding goals. What I'm slightly confused about is why England haven't offered more of a counter-attacking threat when they've been 1-0 up. I mean, winning 1-0 is great, but winning 2-0 or even 3-0, uh, you know, Tom's the stats guy. He can tell you that's even better. Mm. Um, 100% of the time, that is better. Yeah. And I I just think that when there have been situations where the opposition have been coming on to England, there could have been better transitions. There could have been... England have players who dribble forward. Saka's very good at that. You know, there there hasn't been much of that in the second halves against uh, Croatia and the Czech Republic. And I think that's a little bit surprising. But I have a few complaints so far. I think he's he's created a decent structure. He has incorporated technical players. I know people will be disappointed if Grealish is left out, but at least two of Sterling, Mount, Foden and Saka are going to be in. So it's not like, you know, with respect to Grealish, it's not like he's being left out with the, the type of wide players we had in, say, 2012, when I think it was like Milner and Oxlade-Chamberlain and maybe actually Young on the flanks. You know, it's a different calibre of player. So I don't have many complaints about uh, England's performance so far. I think the Scotland game was, that was a poor performance, but I don't think it's particularly applicable to how England might play in in, uh, the coming match. Maybe they're saving up some of these lightning quick transitions for the Germany game because just on paper at least, and I think we've seen it play out a couple of times in reality as well, Germany, because they 
do commit so many men forward. They like to play with that front five in possession where possible. With Kroos and Gundogan, maybe not the most mobile uh, screeners, defensive midfield players, with them on the turn and uh, Hummels as part of a back line, you could certainly see England finding some joy if they can get one or two counter-attacks right. Tom, what are your thoughts on this game? More specifically, what are you concerned about from an England perspective coming up against this Germany side? I think it's whether Rice and Phillips are up to the challenge of kind of controlling the midfield and stopping Germany from getting too too much joy out of England's back line or even getting close to them. And one thing I've noticed in the numbers is that Calvin Phillips has had 12 tackles, challenges lost uh, and fouls when he's attempted to, uh, a tackle, something we, we usually refer to on the site as a, a true tackle. And of these, he's only cleanly kind of engaged in, in the tackle twice, um, which is a really low proportion out of all central and defensive midfielders. So that means he's getting shrugged off quite a lot. Um, he's conceded a lot of fouls as well. So he's getting a lot of plaudits for getting stuck in. Now I think that he's doing a great job as a disruptor and I think he's probably been one of the few beneficiaries of the refs being a bit more lenient, not dipping into their pocket. Um, he's still not being booked so I think he could be key for that. Rice on the other hand I think has been fairly solid uh, but again you're playing sides where there's not many numbers coming at you and the tempo is not as high so this will be obviously their, their biggest challenge and I'm intrigued to see whether I think Southgate probably sticks with that. those two. It's just whether they've got enough experience at this level and will you know, Phillips being a bit too aggressive against better quality technical players, is that gonna is that gonna cost England? Is he gonna be a bit, you know, overcompensate, try and dive in and win the ball and, and open up spaces behind him? So again, I've said it a few times in this pod, I kind of trust Gareth Southgate and his mindset and the way that he approaches analysing and thinking through these sorts of challenges and he'll have thought of this but um, yeah I'm really excited for this game A bit of a day of reckoning Michael for Southgate for, for a number of reasons some of them you know sort of obviously but also just tactically when we've spoken about England and when we spoke about the 2018 World Cup and when we spoke about them before this tournament we questioned his tactical changes in games or rather lack thereof uh, and potentially that being a, a potential weakness and we talked about flexibility and now one of his big themes before the tournament was having the option to play three at the back and four at the back now England have played four at the back uh, for the for the three group games so far this is his time to walk the walk do you think he will switch it up ahead of this knockout game I think he will I think he'll look at Germany against Portugal and realize what happened to to Portugal with their back four in Germany's front five effectively and and change things we know that he's played a back three a lot you know, at the last World Cup, to a certain extent, in in some of the periods since, we know that there's a few players in that squad who are probably only there because there are options in the back three. I think Connor Cody in particular. I'm not saying he'll come into this game, but uh, he's probably there for a reason. And the reason is that Southgate wants to be flexible. Um, I think Carl Walker will shift inside and become the right side of centre back as he did the last World Cup. I think that'd be particularly important if Leroy Sané keeps his his place because of the obvious thing of speed. In an ideal world, I'd like to see him be really attacking as the as the right wing back, and maybe even use Saka there, even even though he's left footed. But I think because of Gosson's running and his aerial power and his ability to, to arrive at the far post, I think he'll go for Reese James as a right wing back. Um, I'm not sure if Mount will return. I mean, there's complications with him potentially not being able to train with the rest of the side until the day before the game when presumably there won't be a very heavy training session anyway. So that's a bit of an issue. I'm not sure he necessarily will come back because I think if England end up playing a front three, maybe it will be Kane up front with Sterling left and Saka on the right. I can see that working. Maybe it will be Mount. I mean, he has played 
in that inside right position for Chelsea pretty well, as well as doing it from the left. So that's maybe the big call. But I would be surprised if it wasn't wing-backs with Reese James in. Going to be a hell of a game. Really looking forward to it. I'm going to brag slightly and tell you guys that I've got a ticket for the match. And I think Michael might have one as well. That, yes, that is true. Unlucky, Tom. True. We'll, we'll send you some pics, Tom. Um, keep, I mean, keep, you, keep your eyes on the UEFA ticket portal, everyone. Because it just it seems to be absolutely random when these tickets come up. It's a bizarre situation. You think they might announce it <laughs> maybe an hour in advance, but they suddenly just go on sale without anyone being told, yeah. which I find bizarre. But there you go. Well, Michael, I'll see you there. Um, for the rest of you, thank you for listening to this third episode of the Zonal Marking Euros notebook. We've previewed there two of the eight ties in detail, but just a reminder, we've also got Italy against Austria, France, Switzerland, Croatia, Spain, Sweden, Ukraine, Netherlands, Czech Republic and Wales, Denmark. We're going to be back on Wednesday, so not long after that England game, we'll be looking back at any of the big topics or trends from the round of 16 and doing what we've done here, previewing some of the tastiest fixtures uh, in the quarterfinals. So thanks for choosing to listen to us today. As always, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast feed to get that episode fresh on Wednesday, probably around lunchtime. And make sure you're subscribed to The Athletic as well, because just in, in talking about some of the things we've discussed today, a lot of that you'll find in great detail in written form on the athletic site and so much more as well the coverage of the euros has been absolutely exceptional and, and you can get all of that if you're a subscriber theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking the place to go to sign up today you'll pay just one pound a month for the first six months of your annual subscription otherwise enjoy a couple of days to recharge i know these guys will we'll talk again next week the athletic <laughs>